This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, March 13th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Today marks one year since Louisville police broke into Breonna Taylor's apartment and shot her dead. It's promising that lawmakers in Kentucky and other states appear to at least want to look like they're doing something about abusive police practices. But Peter Kraska, a criminologist who studies police militarization and who worked on the Breonna Taylor case, says the institutional failures that led to Breonna Taylor's death were manifold and not easy to fix. We spoke earlier this week. So here we are, a year since Breonna Taylor's killing. What have we learned? What is the public aware of that they that they really weren't aware of uh, on March 13th, 2020? You know, I was testifying yesterday at the Kentucky uh, at a Kentucky congressional hearing and I was really surprised at how many of the people listening uh, admitted they didn't know anything about this they had never heard anything about it and of course we had uh, uh, Attica Scott in the room and Charles Booker and both of these people are uh, African American and have a lot of real world experience with the kinds of things that goes on in uh, in the crime fighting venue, um, and they both you could tell were just a little surprised, but of course not very surprised that the people that were questioning us and talking to us were just so completely uh, ignorant about these issues. And of course they've lived these experiences; they've watched them firsthand. They know that they're. Aunt, for example, had a no-knock drug raid done against her household. They, you know, have lived this. And uh, so I think the the first thing that's, uh, I think, really important is the Breonna Taylor tragedy has really uh, increased the profile of this particular problem. And I think a lot more people recognize it, which is strange for me because I've been doing it now for 25 years. And, you know, the first case I worked on, I was asked by the Modesto Police Department to talk to their officers and sort of debrief some people on what had happened there. It was a horrible situation. And uh, and then I've, since that time, which was in the year 2000, um, I've just done this countless numbers of times. So um, this was a situation where police, who were investigating an ex-boyfriend of Brianna Taylor, uh, executed, they had two warrants in hand, I believe. One was a no-knock warrant, uh, notwithstanding the statements of Kentucky's uh, attorney general uh, about what warrants they had in hand, um, said they announced themselves, uh, broke the door, uh, came in, the, came into the apartment, um, and, uh, Ms. Taylor's current boyfriend, uh, Kenneth Walker, uh, fired a shot, think, believing, uh, as all the, all the evidence indicates, that he was a victim of a home invasion, which in a sense he was, and fired his weapon. And so the uh, head of the Louisville uh, Metro Council, David James, who's a former police officer, said that the, the no-knock warrants and... Uh, the so-called stand your ground law, they exist in uh, conflict. What do you think of that? Yes, I, I, I think it absolutely highlighted the conflict between stand your ground laws and the police doing 
surprised forced entries into people's homes. Uh, in the case of Brianna Taylor, it was one o'clock in the morning. Uh, they had no idea what was happening. There's some indications. And of course, the evidence is, is very difficult. And the truth is very difficult to parse out because the first reaction of LMPD, which is pretty universally the case in these kinds of situations, no matter what police department it is, is the withholding of, of information, evidence, uh, sending out disinformation, and not doing anything about it for actually several months before it came to light. And so we really don't, we have a lot of the facts in the case, but we really don't know exactly what happened. Stand your ground and no-knock raids, um, not just no-knock warrants, but no-knock raids um, have uh, already created real conflicts and tragedies. And I suspect that'll continue to happen. There, you know, there was a huge case in, in Texas that uh, really rocked the police department and the state of Texas. Um, and, and some big changes took place as a result. And, and I think that'll continue to happen. So, um, you know, as this case has moved forward, I mean, I, my feeling is that institutions at almost every level failed. Is that your assessment? Absolutely. I mean, it never fails to shock me at the audacity in which these things are investigated, uh, covered up, um, lack of information. You know, it just it, it, it it's pretty remarkable. And of course, that starts at the officer level because they know something bad happened. They don't you know, they know that there are real consequences for these kinds of scenarios. And so all kinds of things start happening at the ground level literally seconds after these kinds of things happen. Narratives take place, uh, stories uh, pass from one officer to the other, and these things trickle up. And eventually the administration, even well-intended administrations, you know, they might be dealing with a very distorted view of what actually took place. And, and all of that ends up resulting in uh, making it difficult to do clean investigations, uh, for that, for it easy, it's easily politicized. It it just almost universally devolves into a mess. Now, I don't know if this is within your area of expertise, but it is my understanding that there is a uh, state law in Kentucky that will hold you criminally liable for shooting uh, an innocent person. And it is my understanding that there is not a police exception to that law. Uh, in the state of Kentucky. Yeah, I looked that up and uh, it, it, it is the case and it's not been talked about and it's uh, something that should have been talked about. Um, and I, it wasn't talked about to the grand jury. I think that's the most important part of this is that the, the grand jury in this case was not presented with uh, that as an appropriate charge. Right. And, and as evidenced by the grand juror's reaction, several of them uh, were just outraged by the lack of candor and the things that weren't talked about and the options that weren't talked about by Attorney General Daniel Cameron. So um, it, it it doesn't surprise me it didn't come up. The uh, uh, grand jury investigation was a mess. I don't understand why there's not been any real political fallout from that. Uh, the evidence is pretty clear that that there was a lot of disinformation and covering up in that. Uh, but I guess that's just how politics go. So going forward, counties and cities exist at the pleasure of states. 
and uh, states, there are reforms on the table uh, in this year in a way that they haven't been in, in previous years. What for you would do the most to, one, restore trust in uh, police agencies uh, and prevent these kinds of tragedies going forward? Well, the folks in Louisville asked me right away what kinds of things needed to be put in place. And probably the most important thing I emphasized to them, and I emphasized yesterday, in fact, to the Kentucky legislature, is that you could literally stop all no-knock warrants from being issued. But you're not going to impact the phenomenon of no-knock drug raids hardly at all. That the police routinely, in fact, uh, Brian Schaefer, one of my former students, did a study in Kentucky of a major police department. He identified that police department as Bourbonville. And he observed 73 different search warrant executions by this particular police department. All 73 they had a normal knock and announce warrant in their hand. In other words, you show up to the door, you knock, you announce your presence, you give time, you give the people inside time to get to the door and answer it, and you serve them with the warrant. This is the kind of routine policing that takes place all of the time. Out of those 73, all 73 were conducted as a no-knock raid. All 73. And this is commonplace throughout the United States of America. It doesn't mean all police departments do it this way, but it does mean a significant number are doing it that way. And they do it because they have gone down this path of, of normalizing a tactical approach to serving a warrant. And whether they have a no-knock warrant or a regular warrant, they don't care. They're going to get in that place quickly. And so basically, they show up to the door. They might knock, but that knock and announce is coming simultaneously with breaking and raking the windows, throwing in uh, percussion devices, um, and and breaching the door almost immediately. And so in reality, it's a no-knock raid. And if and, and what I tried to emphasize to Louisville, and they listened, and and they put things in place to control this, is that you have to rein that in as well. So two things: restrict no-knock warrants, maybe ban them. You know, you could if you restrict them significantly enough, you're going to get rid of them, their involvement in in the drug problem, which is where, where most of these are occurring. So you restrict no-knock warrants, the issues issuance of them. And then you put in place all kinds of different common sense measures that would force the police to actually execute a knock warrant in a constitutional manner. Simple. The other institution that failed, uh, arguably, is the judicial system. That is, uh, when warrants are issued, uh, they need to have particularized information about the subject of the warrant. Um, the Supreme Court has, as far as I know, made this quite clear. And yet, boilerplate language simply appears on warrants on a regular basis 
and the judge, at least in this case, w- w- did not provide any uh, scrutiny or uh, send the warrant back for particular details. That is also, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, exceedingly common. Yeah, I would say that's the norm. Um, this becomes just a matter of bureaucracy. This is what bureaucracies do. They normalize operations. They routinize operations. The police don't want to do the kind of investigations and and heavy lifting when it comes to writing these things out. And so, yeah, they cut and paste, literally cut and paste. And And the magistrates and judges that are reviewing this are seeing cut and paste language every day, 365 days a year. And that's just the norm. It's not constitutional, but it's absolutely the norm. And somebody might say, well, yeah, well, maybe they are just routine. Uh, maybe that's just the way it needs to be done. We're not talking about just a, uh, a hand-wringing about failing to do something properly. We're talking about a system that ends up making an incredibly consequential, potentially dangerous decision based on not particularized evidence in that case that would give a judge and a magistrate real information to make an informed decision. But instead, oh, there it is, check the box. And it just becomes a, uh, a matter of check the box. And the judiciary has to be held responsible for that as well. Attica Scott, you mentioned uh, she is a Louisville lawmaker. And of course, we we have to mention that we're both speaking to each other at different locations in Kentucky right now. Um, she has among the reforms that she has proposed is an end to qualified immunity for all government officials, um, which would allow public officials to be more easily held civilly liable uh, for misconduct. Um, I think it's clear that there was misconduct here, but uh, what do you think broadly about the impact of ending qualified immunity uh, on preventing cases like uh, the killing of Breonna Taylor? You know, experts that don't care for qualified immunity are torn about this. I mean, some of them say it, it's it, it, if you did major reforms and qualified immunity, it really wouldn't amount to much. Some of them say it's the holy grail to reform. I suspect the truth is somewhere in between, that the police institution and the government is so spectacularly brilliant at workarounds, pushing it in one direction and having that balloon pop out in an unintended direction, and then everything just sort of stays the same. Um, it, it, there's no doubt it has to be reformed. It's great to see that Attica Scott is pushing that. I doubt that's going to happen in the state of Kentucky because of a GOP supermajority, um, bipartisanship with regard to criminal justice, unfortunately seems to have gone by the wayside temporarily. Hopefully that's temporary. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think reforming that would make a significant difference in the short run, at least. Um, until the system comes up with a workaround. There's this uh, notion in law, uh, the Castle Doctrine, uh, and warrants in general are an exception to that, and no-knock warrants in particular are a uh, really strong 
exception to that notion, the idea that you you can stay in your home and for the most part, you can ignore the police when you're within your home. Um, for many black Americans, the feeling is that that castle doctrine simply doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to them. And in, in cases where uh, one warrant is in hand, but another warrant uh, might as well have been in hand when they uh, execute a, a no-knock raid, with, you know, like, as I said, without a no-knock warrant, uh, I think I have a lot of sympathy for that view. Yeah, I think it's really critical to recognize that Black folks have had to deal with government intrusions into their private space for a long, long time. And so you're right. It's it's not anything that surprises them, even though it's incredibly disturbing and alarming that it takes place. I mean, I started studying this issue in the late 1980s. That's when the Reagan-Bush drug war had really kicked in full gear. And it became routine and commonplace for SWAT teams to break inside people's residences. Uh, I did two national studies and found back in the, uh, in the early 1990s, all the way through the late 1990s, that you had police departments that were doing 500 no-knock raids inside residences a year, 500 a year, using SWAT teams. And remember, they're using the Navy SEALs approach for hostage rescue. So they'll show up at four in the morning when people are in the middle of rapid eye movement sleep, just like the Navy SEALs manual says. They'll stack up at the front door. They go with the breaching devices. They do all the kinds of things that the Navy SEALs taught them to do. And by the way, literally taught them to do. Our surveys found that 50% of police departments back in the 90s were receiving direct training from active military special operations groups. The black community has been subjected to this for a long, long time. We don't have good data, unfortunately, on the racial disproportionality, but we knew we do know from location to location that these kinds of things are predominantly in the 80th percentile, predominantly done against uh, black folks in their in their own homes. So yeah, this this resonates. It's a it's a huge. It has been a huge problem for decades, and it's it's good to see it get it getting attention. There are a lot of reform efforts underway, and uh, I've got my fingers crossed that that's going to make a difference. Peter Kraska is a professor in the School of Justice Studies at Eastern Kentucky University and has spent decades studying police tactics. We spoke earlier this week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 